Well, I invite you now to stand with me as we uh, are going to turn our attention to Daniel chapter 8. I'm going to read the vision. There is a, this is Daniel 8 divided basically in half, uh, almost exactly, between the vision and the interpretation. For the sake of time this morning, I just want us to read the vision uh, and see what Daniel sees, and then we will spend some time explaining what Daniel sees from how the angel Gabriel explained it to him. This is the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. And it had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown." And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Let's pray together. Father God, we began this morning with hearts that are broken for people who, because of the sinful hearts of men, are displaced from their homes this morning by war. As we have watched the horrifying images of families fleeing of children taking refuge in tunnels as the armies of men seek to gain power for themselves. God, we pray that you would bring an end to to, to aggression in the name of Jesus, that you would protect the innocent. God, that you would turn back the forces of evil. We pray, God, for your church 
who is caught in the midst of war as she has been caught in the midst of war for centuries. We pray, God, for the stand that Christian brothers and sisters will take in the name of Jesus, who have already taken stands and who will do so in the coming days. May they find strength and courage, we pray. God, we confess that while we do not understand why these things happen, we believe that you are a sovereign, providential, all-knowing God who, ha- who holds the power in your hand, who holds the very universe in your hand. God, we pray for the spread of the gospel, even in these times of trouble. We pray, God, that people would turn to you and believe and be saved by what they see you do as you guide your people there in the Ukraine. Father, we pray that you would give wisdom to world leaders as they seek to put an end to this strife. And we pray that that would come quickly. In the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. This morning, we turn our attention to Daniel chapter 8, which if you, are, if you have read through Daniel before, or maybe you've even listened to other people preach Daniel or read books about uh, the second half of Daniel, if you're new with us, we're walking through the whole book of Daniel. The second half of Daniel, chapter 7 through 12, are, are the apocalyptic section of Daniel. They are apocalyptic visions, a collection of visions that Daniel sees over a period of time, dealing with different times, periods of time in Uh, history, some which have already taken place and others which have yet uh, to take place even in our day. But Daniel 8 is unique in the visions that Daniel receives, so much so that some people in preaching it, in preaching through Daniel, will just skip Daniel 8 altogether. Uh, Some books that have been written about Daniel 8 will spend very little, if any, time on the subject. There are some who would even say that Daniel 8 can't really even be preached as Christian scripture because of the vision and the fulfillment that we will see here. Now, we know and believe and confess together as a church that all scripture is Christian scripture, that from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible is God's instruction for his people. It is for us, and so we are going to give as much attention to Daniel 8 as we have given to the rest of the book. And I think as I worked my way through this this week, and as I I stand before you today excited to preach Daniel 8, because I think there is some great encouragement that we can find here in Daniel, in this chapter of Daniel. Let me begin by just speaking about Old Testament prophecy in general. I told you last week when we began this second section in Daniel that Daniel is, these these last six chapters are known as apocalyptic literature. They stand as somewhat unique in the writings of Daniel, even though, or in the writings of the Old Testament, even though they do not stand unique in the literature of the day. Apocalyptic literature uh, was popular during the time of Daniel through the intertestamental period, even into the New Testament period, giving us the book of Revelation, which is Daniel's, this section of Daniel's closest cousin. They are both apocalyptic literatures. But apocalyptic literature, while it is highly symbolic and is intended to be read as highly symbolic, is prophecy. It is telling in that moment something that is yet to come, a word from the Lord that will come to pass. And when we think about Old Testament prophecy, most Old Testament prophecy, not all, but most Old Testament prophecy 
terminates in three places, meaning it finds its fulfillment in three major events. One in the Old Testament, or really a period of the Old Testament, I'm combining this into one, and that is the judgment of God on Israel during the Babylonian captivity and exile, and the return of God's people under the Persian Empire to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple recorded for us in Ezra and Nehemiah. So most of the prophets, when the prophets are speaking about future events, are actually speaking about future events that for us now are in the past. They're speaking about the sin of God's people and God bringing um, judgment upon them primarily through the Babylonian captivity exile where Daniel finds himself, and then the eventual return and restoration of God's people to Israel. That's the first place. The second place that Old Testament prophecy most commonly terminates is in the birth, life, death, ascension of Jesus and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. We'll put Pentecost in that same time frame. So there's a a good portion of Old Testament prophecy that looks forward to what is known as the first advent, the first coming of Jesus, that, that the Messiah would one day come. The third place is yet to happen. The first two are past for us. They were future for those receiving the prophecies and delivering them to God's people, but they're past for us. The third is, is, is future for all of us, and that is in the second advent, the second coming of Jesus, where Jesus will establish his rule and reign physically for all time. And there are both Old Testament and New Testament prophecies that look forward to the second advent of Jesus. When we come to a prophecy, though, that doesn't fit really well into one of those categories, we struggle with what to do with it. When a prophecy isn't specifically about the, uh, the, the conquering of God's people because of their sin, the, the punishment in exile, and then the eventual return of God's people, or it doesn't find its yes in the first advent of Jesus or in the second advent of Jesus, we struggle a little bit because those are the main categories. And we've learned to kind of read the Bible. If you're a student of scripture, you've learned to read the Bible kind of in those categories. And this is why people struggle with Daniel chapter 8, because Daniel chapter 8 isn't about any of those things. Now, it is loosely connected to the first, and I'm going to argue at the end, at least somewhat of a foreshadowing of something that we will, that we will experience during the third. But what Daniel sees and what, Daniel, uh, what ultimately is fulfilled in what Daniel sees is a period of time actually not addressed in the scriptures at all. The fulfillment of Daniel chapter eight takes place in what is known as the intertestamental period. That time between the closing of the Old Testament canon, about 400 years before Jesus, and the, the introduction of New Testament canon with the life and death of Jesus and the spread of the New Testament church and the letters concerning uh, that spread. So there's this 400-year period, and right in the middle of that is a major event in the life of the Jewish people. They still celebrate this event today, right around the time that we're celebrating Christmas. They're celebrating Hanukkah, and the celebration of Hanukkah was God's faithfulness during this period of time, a couple of hundred years or so uh, before Jesus. And that's what Daniel 8 is looking forward to. 
Daniel 8 is not looking into a distant future for us. It is actually looking into a distant past for us. But there is still great encouragement that we can receive from this prophecy. The prophecy of Daniel 8 is so detailed and so accurate in its detail that because of Daniel 8 and its accuracy to the events that transpire uh, during, the, during the reign of the, of the empire of Greece in the land of Israel, the detail is so accurate that it has led uh, textual critics and liberal scholars to assume that there is no way that it could have actually been received and written down by Daniel. They actually used Daniel 8 to, to argue for a later writing of Daniel, a writing of Daniel that would have only taken place maybe 100 or 150 years before Jesus is born, simply because of its accuracy. Now, here's what I believe, hopefully, everybody in here understands, at least what I'm going to argue for. It's not accurate because the events had already taken place. It's accurate because God knows all of the events that are going to take place. And what God reveals to Daniel in Daniel chapter 8 is an incredible portrayal of this little time frame and this picture really spanning a couple of hundred years that happens that we can look back on and find great comfort leading to this, that we would place our trust in a sovereign God who holds the nations in his hand. That has been the one of the two primary themes that we've seen throughout this study of Daniel. One is that God holds the nations in his hand. He is sovereign over empires, or the rising up and the falling of empires. And two, the people of God are expected to be faithful and obedient during their time in those empires. That's what we've seen in Daniel. And this is what Daniel 8 shows us, that God is sovereign to be able to reveal to Daniel in incredible detail what will unfold after the people of God return from exile, but before the Messiah comes. So fortunately in Daniel 8, as we saw in Daniel 7, but I think even with a little more detail in Daniel 8, we not only get a vision, which we read at the beginning, but we also get an interpretation. And I am, I am really appreciative of the interpretation because with the interpretation, we don't have to wonder what in the world these things men are mean to us because the scriptures tell us. So what I want us to do is walk through the vision and the interpretation of the vision side by side. So we're not going to go uh, in direct order. We're actually gonna go in order with the vision and the interpretation, looking at uh, the verses side by side with one another to help us as we see the vision and interpretation of a ram, a goat, and a little horn. I mean, it was kind of a weird vision, wasn't it? This, this vision of, of this ram and this vision of this goat that neither of which kind of look normal and then they fight together and one beats the other and something breaks off and something else rises up and this is apocalyptic literature. This is the intent of it. We're supposed to see it and hear it. We're supposed to put ourselves in the midst of it. it it's supposed to be like a very vivid dream. You've had these kind of dreams before. It's like startles you from your sleep. That's the intention of this vision. It's recorded in this way. You're almost supposed to uh, understand this passage with all of your senses. It's not just you're taking it in with your eyes and you're understanding with your mind. Th this, is, this is playing out in front of us as the way it is described. So let's look at first when Daniel receives this vision and this interpretation. We're told in verses one and two 
that this is the third year of the reign of King uh, Belshazzar and that a, a vision appeared to Daniel. So this means that it is two years or two to three years after the vision of Daniel chapter seven. The vision of Daniel chapter seven happened in the first year of the reign of Belshazzar and this is the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. And we're told that in the vision, he sees something. And what he sees initially is a place where he is not. We should make the assumption that Daniel is still in the city of Babylon, but in the vision, he's taken to a place called Susa. Now, Susa would be about 220 miles away from Babylon, Babylon in modern-day Iraq, Susa in modern-day Iran, right? Neither one of these places you're going to visit today. But Daniel, in his vision, visits Susa. Now, Susa, after this time, becomes even more of an important city as it becomes the winter uh, palace for the Persian kings. Babylon is still ruling, but we're uh, about 10 or 12 years away from the handwriting on the wall and Persia taking over Babylon. And one of the things that Persia does is they establish Susa as the uh, winter palace for the kings. It was a fortified city, uh, had, had great river access, which we see here in the text. And so it was a place where kings would go during the winter. It's where both the books of Nehemiah and Esther begin in Susa, which both of those books take place during the Persian empire. And so Daniel in this vision sees Susa, the citadel, the fortified city of Susa, it's in the, what's known as the province of Elam. Elam is an ancient historic uh, kingdom that at times ruled themselves and were times were vassal kingdoms. At this point, that's really kind of what we see. They're being passed back and forth between Babylon and Persia. And he sees this vision and he is over. He, he says, I was at the Ulai Canal. The, the way the language is, is uh, intended for us to see is like almost as if Daniel is floating over this very important canal, 900 feet wide, this canal. So Daniel's in the fortified city of Susa, floating over this canal. I mean, we get this grand image, right? Now, if we skip to the interpretation, in, in verse, starting in verse 15, we read this. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. So Daniel didn't understand it right away. Just like we don't understand it right away, right? Uh, rams and goats and horns and all and whatnot. And so he says, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli and it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But when he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. And he said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. So this is the first of three mentions of an angelic being known as Daniel in the whole Bible. Or known as, sorry, known as Gabriel in the whole Bible. Daniel's the prophet. Gabriel is the angel. But there's actually two people present. There's one who looks like a man, and then there's Gabriel. And the one who looks like a man speaks to Gabriel and says, Gabriel, tell Daniel the reason that he has seen this vision. Tell him what this vision means. Now, the one who looks like a man is God. So God himself is giving instruction to Gabriel, one of his angels, to make known to Daniel the meaning of the vision. 
And in both 17 and 19, we're told that the vision concerns the time of the end. Verse 17 ends with that the vision is for the time of the end. And verse 19 ends with Gabriel saying, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Now, you may immediately jump to the conclusion that this means it's about the end of time which I told you is one of the three places where Old Testament prophecy finds its fulfillment is in the end of time. But if you use verses 17 and 19 to make that conclusion, you're getting way ahead of yourself because that's not what it means. It's not what the original language, it's not what the original phrase required. The phrase that is used there that is interpreted both times, the time of the end or the appointed time of the end is a phrase intended to denote the end of a prophetic period, the, the end of a certain period, kind of looking towards the end of something, not necessarily the end of everything. So it could refer to the end of everything, but as you're gonna see as we walk through this, it clearly doesn't refer to the end of everything. It referred to a very specific prophetic time. It's almost as if it's talking about a period of epilogue, and I told you that this vision is kind of loosely tied to the visions that we see or other prophecies that we see concerning the exile and return of God's people. The exile and return of God's people is a meta-narrative in the Old Testament prophecy. And we can almost see Daniel 8 as an epilogue to that, as something that happens after that, but is still kind of tied to it. And it's probably the reason that Daniel reacts um, the way that he does to this vision and to its interpretation. Because for Daniel, he would have known what the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah had said, where, where they had prophesied that the, the exile would last about 70 years. And here's Daniel having been in exile by this point, somewhere in the range of 45 or 50 years. So Daniel knows we only have maybe a couple of decades of exile left, but when he understands the, the vision and the interpretation of the vision, Daniel then finally sees, wait a second, everything's not gonna be all rosy for the people of God when they get back to Jerusalem. Everything's not gonna be back as it should have been. There's, there's this kind of epilogue. There's this period where there's still going to be a lot of turmoil. And that's what Daniel, the vision of Daniel 8 is speaking to. So the vision here of the ram and of the goat is about the rise and fall of empires. As so much of Daniel has already been about that God in his providence raises up empires for a period of time and then raises up other empires to conquer those. And this has been what God has done throughout human history. In verses three and four, we're given the, the vision of the first of the two animals that appear there beside this canal. The, the first is a ram, we're told in verse three. A ram is what Daniel sees standing beside the canal. And as many rams do, it has two horns. So, so far, this isn't all that strange, right? A ram, this is a, a male sheep and it's got two horns and we can kind of picture this in our mind, except for these horns aren't normal. One of these horns is high and the other is low. One came up in Daniel's vision. One comes up higher than the other, but the one that comes up higher than the other came up later than the first. So Daniel actually sees these horns growing out of this ram's head. And one that came up second supersedes the first. 
And then he sees this ram, and this ram charges to the west and to the north and to the south, and no other beast, apparently there's other animals there in the canal, no other beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Now, if we go to Daniel chapter 8, verse 20, we're told who this ram is. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So this is the Persian empire that in about a decade will conquer Babylon. And as we saw in previous visions and previous descriptions of this event, the Medes and the Persians were one empire, but eventually the Persians rise up to be greater. So the two horns of the ram are the Medes and the Persians. The higher horn is the Persians. The Persians spreading from east come into the Babylonian empire and move west, north, and south, just as is described here in the vision. So they spread from the east and go beyond the borders of Babylon, both to the south, to the west, and to the north. The Persian empire, as we see here in verse four, is unstoppable. No other beast could stand before them. And for about 200 years after this vision, for about 200 years after Persia conquers Babylon, this is how the known world viewed Persia. I mean, nobody could stand before, before Persia. Persia went to areas that had never been conquered before by kingdoms in this area. They conquered Egypt. They had two different excursions into Greece and conquered many of the free city-states of Greece. Persia seemed as if it was entirely unstoppable, just like this ram here seems entirely unstoppable. But then another animal appears in verse 5. He says, I was, as I was considering, as Daniel said, as I was thinking about what I'm seeing here, a male goat. So goat, similar to a ram, uh, but different, right? A male goat comes from the west. So Persia invaded from the east and spreads northwest and south. A male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran into him in his powerful wrath. And I saw him come close to the ram and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. He cast him down to the ground, trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but then he was... Uh, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. So this goat looks a little different. It's got just this one kind of big horn that's in the middle and it comes and challenges the ram. And boy, does it just lay waste to the ram. In verse 21 and 22, we're told what this means. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between its eyes is its first king. So let's just stop there for a minute. This is the empire of Greece that is going to come not from the east where Persia came from. It's going to come from the west. And if we, you look at a map, you would see this is Greece is to the west of the Babylonian, ultimately the Persian empire. And this is exactly what happens. I mean, exactly what happens. The first king, the greatest king of Greece was Alexander the Great. And the description here is incredible, uh, is an incredible portrayal of what, of the conquest of Alexander the Great. He is that conspicuous horn. And he, he defeats the Persian empire in 330 BC. So about 200 years after this takes place, 220 years after this takes place, after this vision takes place, 
This actually happens. Alexander the Great comes from the West and his spread was so quick, he was like this, he was like this goat. It's, the, the, the vision says it seemed like the goat didn't even touch the ground, right? That, that's saying just how fast his spread was. And this is what we see in history from the, the conquest of Alexander the Great. This guy came quicker than anybody else had ever come. They thought Persia was fast, but no. Look, Alexander the Great, and I don't know how much you know about him, but Alexander the Great was a young guy. Basically, he started this conquest in his mid-20s. He took over for his father, who had been the king of Greece, and Greece was small at that point. And Alexander the Great, in his mid-20s, begins this conquest of the known world. And by the time he is 27 years old, he rules everything anybody knew existed. Now, we know other lands existed. But in this point, from their perspective, Alexander the Great ruled the world at 27 years old. But do you know what happened? At 27, he is the king of the world. And at 33, he's dead. Alexander the Great dies just six years after establishing dominance over his new empire. And this is what we see here in the text. I told you, this is, I mean, this literature just, just paints this picture 200 years before it happens, right? Because what happens? Nobody could rescue from, from his power. He becomes exceedingly great in verse eight. But when he was strong, when he was at his strongest, when he was at his height, the great horn was broken. Alexander the Great conquers the entire world in his, 20 and in his 20s and dies in his early 30s. And no one is able to replace him. No one replaces him. It takes four men to do what Alexander the Great was doing. And none of them do it very well. And so the, the, the kingdom of Greece is divided into four sections. His four generals take over for him. And that's what we see with the four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. So kind of the four areas of Greece are divided after Alexander the Great dies and his kingdom. In verse 22, we're told, as for the four horns that were broken in its place, four others, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. None were as powerful as Alexander the Great. It's still Greece, but it's divided Greece. And it's what exists in the world for quite a while until, until the Roman Empire ultimately pushes them back and defeats them. But in the midst of all of this, this is the history of it. In the midst of all of this, after the fight, Daniel sees something else, a, the rise and destruction of one who is a little horn ruler who ultimately oppresses God's people. Look at verse nine, out of one of them came a little horn. So out of one of those four horns that grew up in place of Alexander the Great, another horn grows up, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. The glorious land is Israel, specifically Jerusalem. It grew great even to the host of heavens and some of the hosts and some of the stars that threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown and a host will be given over to him together with the regular burnt offering because of uh, transgression and it will, be throw, it, it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to trample underfoot? What in the world do we see here? I mean, here we've got Persia. That's pretty easy to see. And we've got 
Greece, that's pretty easy to see. We've got Alexander the Great. We've got the four generals of Alexander the Great. But then something else is going to happen here. This little horn. Now we've already been introduced to a little horn. In chapter seven, we're introduced to a little horn that grows out of the beast, right? Out of that fourth beast grows a little horn. This is not the same little horn. The little horn represents a ruler that will persecute God's people. It is a different little horn that we see in chapter seven because it's growing out of a different kingdom. It's growing out of a different beast. Now, in some ways, all of the little horns lead to one another. All of the little horns are leading to something else, but this is a different one. So we don't need to see the little horn of chapter eight as the little horn of chapter seven. He is a type of that little horn. As we ended last week, many little horns, many antichrists will rise. Many will arise to oppose God's people. And this is just another manifestation of that little horn. The little horn that's described here in Daniel chapter eight is without a doubt. And I'm I'm saying like, there's not many times I'm going to say without a doubt in preaching Daniel seven through 12. But with Daniel eight, I'm going to say the phrase without a doubt, okay? Okay. The little horn in Daniel chapter eight is without a doubt a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. That is who the little horn of Daniel eight is. You maybe have never heard of this person before, but he is a relatively important person in the history of the Middle East. He ruled one of those four kingdoms, that, those four kingdoms of Greece that were divided. One became known as the Seleucid Empire. It really ruled the portion of Greece that was in Syria and Persia. And for a while, the the kingdom that ruled in Egypt controlled Israel, but then eventually it kind of changed, Israel changes hands. And Antiochus Epiphanes comes to rule, and he rules from 175 BC to 164 BC. So about 200 years before the events of the life of Jesus, 175, 200 years before the events of the life of Jesus, here we have this ruler over a portion of Greece who is represented in this little horn. And he is a great persecutor of God's people. He is is pretty aptly described in the little horn, by the way. And this is just how history describes him. He, as many many of the other um, little horns throughout history, think people like Napoleon and Hitler and maybe even Vladimir Putin, if I will say it, um, are, uh, really have little man syndrome, right? The reason they do what they do is because they want people to think they're great, even though they're just a little horn. They want to be that big horn, but they're not. They're just, and so I think the vision, the vision that we see, the imagery of the scripture is telling here that this is just a little horn. But man, this little horn causes a lot of damage for a period of time. So he actually tries to conquer Egypt and is unable to do so. And because he's embarrassed in his conquest in Egypt, he ends up going back to Jerusalem and causing all manner of havoc in Jerusalem. And that's what's being described for us in verses 10 through 13. We're, we're, we're told the, the great devastation this man causes. Listen to the interpretation in verses 23 through 25. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit, uh, deceit prosper under his hand. His own mind shall become great. 
Right, little man said, he, he thinks more of himself than he ought to. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but not by human hand. And this is what happens. This is what happens in uh, the second century B.C., is this man, this, this little horn arises and greatly persecutes God's people. Now, God's people have been back in Israel for 200, 250 years by this point. And yet there's still great persecution that is taking place. And here's what we see. It's, look at verse 10, right? And it grew great. This little horn grew great. And the host, all the way to the host of the heaven, and even threw down some of the stars, the throwing down of the heavenly host represents a great persecution of God's people, which began in 170 BC. In verse 11, it said, it became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And you say, well, who is the prince of the host? If you'll notice in your Bible, it's capitalized. It's a pretty good indication that it's talking about God. This man considered himself to be a God. I told you his name was Antiochus Epiphanes, right? Do you know his... His, that Antiochus wasn't even his actual name. That was the name of his father that he took when he became king. But he added the second part, Epiphanes, which means one like God. He actually put it on the coin. That's what he put on the coin that he distributed, the money that he distributed in his kingdom, calling himself God. And not just any God, calling himself Zeus. He was he considered himself to be the personification of the great God of the Greek pantheon. This is how he saw himself as this epiphany before the people, this God before them. And he makes himself great. And he considers himself to be a God. And then in verse 11, we're told that the offering is taken away. And so what Antiochus does is Antiochus comes into Jerusalem and not only does he slaughter people and sell people into slavery, but he goes into the temple and he forbids, the he forbids that sacrifices be made to God any longer in the temple. He does two things. Actually, he does three things that are all represented here in the text. The first thing that he does is he sacrifices a pig on the holy altar. Where a pig, obviously, if you know your Old Testament, a pig would have been considered an unclean animal. The Jews would have never sacrificed an unclean animal, but he sacrificed a pig, making the holy altar now defiled. Number two, he erects a statue of Zeus himself, right? A statue of Zeus in the holy temple. So the holy temple now is not a place to come and worship the one true God. It is now a place to come and worship false gods. The other thing that we see that he does, it's ta it talks in verse 13 about or sorry, in verse 12, about uh, being thrown to the ground and, and being trampled on. Well, when do we see this? Actually, in verse 13, that the host will be trampled underfoot. He removes from the temple the scrolls of the Torah, the Old Testament, takes them out to the steps and tears them into pieces, and his army marches over them. So here this little horn greatly persecutes God's people. During this time is, is what we know of in history as the Maccabean revolt, that there was a people, that many of people of Israel actually go along with it. It is their transgression that is mentioned here in the text. Their transgression is that it's not everyone who revolts, it's the Maccabees hold a revolt. 80,000 people were told are slaughtered or sold into slavery during this time. Of persecution. And then verse 13 ends with this cry of how long will this take place? 
How long? And we're left kind of with this thought of how long will this take place? Leads us to our second point, the truthfulness of the vision and reason for it. I'm gonna stop apologizing for going long during this section of Daniel. Let me just warn you, I'm going to go long during this section of Daniel. <laughs> I am dividing chapter two into, uh, chapter nine into two parts, okay? So it's gonna take us two weeks to get through chapter nine because, well, it's chapter nine of Daniel. Um, it's the hardest passage in all the Bible is the end of chapter nine of Daniel, okay? But we'll get there in two weeks. So look at, look at Daniel 8, 14. And he said to me, so this question gets asked. Somebody asked a question like, how long? I mean, pigs being sacrificed, Zeus being worshiped, the Torah is destroyed. How long is this going to take place? And there's an answer for 2,300 2, 2, evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. Now, there's two views here. There's two views of what this 2,300 evenings and mornings represent. One is that says that we should divide them in half. To divide 2,300 in half is 1,150 because it's mentioned evening and morning. And at that time, a lamb was being sacrificed in the evening and a lamb was being sacrificed in the morning. And so some believe that the 2,300 actually represents number of sacrifices from the time that the sacrificial system is stopped to the time that the sacrificial system is restored. Some believe that 2,300 is, not, is talking about actual days, which comes to six years and about two months. Here's the truth. In either way, and I don't really have an opinion on it. I don't really know which one it's supposed to be because actually both of them work really well. If you take the time from the time that the, uh, that the temple is desecrated to the time that the temple is reconsecrated for uh, sacrifice and holy worship, it is right about three years. It's from 167 BC to 164 BC, which if you divide 2300 and half, and divide that by the number of days in a year, you get right about three years. If, however, you take this 2,300 to actually be talking about 2,300 actual days, it's six years and two months. Six years and two months takes you back to 170 BC, which is when the conflict itself began. Some actually trace it back to the time where there was, there was an influential priest in Jerusalem, and he was kind of the first martyr, the first one killed, during this, during this conflict. And you could trace it all the way back there and it would be right about six years and two months. I don't really have a dog in the fight. I don't care which one of those it is. Here's what we walk away with. Daniel 8, 26. The vision of the evening and the mornings that has been told is true. That's more important. I don't know which one of those it actually is. I'm not sure which one of those God had in mind. Maybe God had both of them in mind. I don't know. But here's what's important. Gabriel says, the vision of the evening and morning is true true because God is the one who knows because God is the one who establishes kingdoms and God is the one who calls us to be obedient during these times of during all times but here during these times of great persecution God is the one in control and this is what we see in the interpretation. The vision of the evening and the mornings is told is true. He says to Daniel, this will happen but it's not gonna happen forever. God is in control. The Lord is the one who reveals these things and he reveals these things for the benefit of his people. Verse 26 continues, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. And then we're told that Daniel was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then he arose and went about, his, went about the king's business, but was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. It is the Lord who knows and establishes all things. 
It is, it is the Lord who tells Daniel, seal these things up. Seal it up doesn't mean keep it secret, by the way. Seal it up means keep it safe. Make sure people will know about it. Why was it important for people to know about? So that the people being persecuted by this little horn would be able to say, God's in control. The people being persecuted by this little king would be able to say, it's only for a period of time that God is going to restore us to our land. And that is what God does. Now, let me make one just quick little point because I want to connect for us this little horn that rises and persecutes God people, God's people during the intertestamental time to the, to the little horn of, of chapter seven and to what we're going to see later in Daniel. I told you this isn't the same little horn. It's not. I think the little horn that arises in chapter seven is a future little horn. This was, we could call him the first of many because I truly believe as we saw in first John that many antichrists will arise, that some had already arisen in John's day, some have arisen throughout church's history and some are probably arising right now. Let me tell you why. It is because God is the one that is in control, not the enemy. We give the enemy way too much credit. We really do. We give the enemy way too much credit. We think the enemy knows things that haven't happened yet. He doesn't. The only access to future events that the enemy has are the same information that we have in Holy Scripture. Now, he knows Holy Scripture, but he doesn't have, he's not all-knowing. He doesn't know the future. He doesn't know when these things will happen in the future. So what does the enemy do? Throughout the course of history, the enemy has, has raised up those who will do evil and persecute God's people. And he has done it for generation after generation after generation. And so when people looked at Napoleon and said, this must be the Antichrist, while they were wrong about him being the ultimate fulfillment of the Antichrist, they were right. He was a little horn. When people in the 20th century looked at Hitler and said he must be an Antichrist, they were wrong about him being the final one. But yes, he was a little horn, just like Antiochus Epiphany. Just like Titus, who destroys the temple in 70 AD. That these little horns, these little men who rise and do evil for just a period of time, it's always what Satan does. But God is always in control at every step of the way. And this story here in Daniel 8 shows that to us. So what? Fulfilled prophecy exists in scripture so that people of God will trust in him during times of trial and in those things that have yet to be fulfilled. Put yourself in the position of these intertestamental period Israelites, generations before being restored to Israel. And now this takes place. Now they're being persecuted again. Now after sacrifice has been restored in the temple, now it's going to be desecrated in such a way. But they had hope because Daniel 200 years before had written them hope. And we too can have hope we too can know in times of great trial, we can understand that God is in control and we can trust him. And even in those things that are yet to happen, we can trust him. Jesus says as much in John 16, Jesus is gonna tell his disciples something that's going to happen and then he's gonna tell them why he's telling them. Listen to it. I've said all these things that you may, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. 
Jesus says, the reason I'm warning you of this, he says at the beginning, so you won't fall away. And what's going to keep you from falling away? You're going to remember I told you. You're going to remember that I am in control. So when we read things like 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which I don't have time to read, when, when we read things like the coming of a future antichrist, one who will greatly persecute God's people, it should not be with fear and trepidation. It should be with the recognition that we trust God. And I recognize that I say this. I promise you I'm wrapping up. I recognize that I say this in a period of time where things for people like us have gone fairly well. We're going to drive home today and not have to worry about bombs exploding. We're not under attack in this moment. Now that day may come, but it's not for us right now. But that if that day comes, I hope and pray that we will have the kind of strength and courage and faith in our providential God that we have seen throughout human history and that we are seeing demonstrated in the lives of Christians today under persecution. Oh, church, let us trust God and let us look to passages like Daniel 8 where we can say, I know God is in control because God knows the end from the beginning. And I will trust him. Maybe you've never put that trust in God. Could I invite you today, friend, put your trust in this God who knows not only the future, but knows your future. Not only holds the universe in his hand, but holds you, my friend, in his hand. And this God invites you today to trust him through faith and repentance towards Jesus Christ. That if you will but believe, you'll be saved. If you will but believe, you'll never have to worry about the persecution in this world and the turmoil of this world for while it may come for you it is but temporary because God holds the victory in his hand let's pray together father we thank you oh that your scripture is true that it instructs us to believe it is true and to believe that you are the sovereign God creator of all things who holds all of time and humanity in your hand let us put our trust in you. Thank you, God, for recording these things for our benefit, that we may know them. Thank you for telling us, even of the persecution of Christians, that we will know when these things happen. They happen because you have told us they will happen. So we will trust you. Let us, I pray, be a people who trust in you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.